On this week's 51%, you know, you should be really looking for a relationship where you feel equal, where you feel safe, where you're not feeling like somebody's trying to tear you down. Domestic violence is life or death. And if it doesn't kill you physically, it can emotionally, psychologically, it really does affect you. You don't deserve to live that right now. We discuss domestic violence, what it looks like, what resources are available, and how to get help. Coming up on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on, I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh Alita. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and perspectives. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jesse King. Just a note that today's episode may be triggering or upsetting to some listeners, as we're going to try to tackle a very sensitive subject. Since 1987, October has been National Domestic Violence Awareness Month, a time to discuss the various forms of abuse that can go on behind closed doors and lift up survivors. Nonprofits and community organizations across the country are hosting seminars, conferences, and otherwise doing what they can to better inform the public. And I'd like to start with an organization based in Orlando, Florida, called Stand Up Survivor. It was founded by Lisa Alexander in 2015, and Stand Up Survivor claims to reach roughly 1.3 million people a month worldwide for domestic violence education, prevention, and awareness. And notably, it is survivor-led. Alexander says her own experience with her now ex-husband prompted her to start the organization. We were together for 10 years and, you know, it didn't start physical, but it gradually became from emotional, psychological abuse. It was very controlling and manipulative. When I became pregnant with our daughter, that's when it became physically violent. The domestic violence just like went through the roof immediately. It just went all the way up. And then four months after I had my daughter, I had my son and then I was stuck. I literally felt stuck. I decided, you know, I can't go anywhere. He already told me no one would ever want me. Um, and so I stayed in that relationship till my children were two and three. Um, and then it just got really bad. So I got to the point where I knew that I had to leave or he was going to kill me. Um, and I always say not, you know, if he was going to kill me, it was more like when he was going to kill me. That was back in 2010. And Alexander says the thing that got her out the door was a YouTube video in which a woman recounted her experience with domestic violence and perhaps more importantly, her successful life afterwards. Alexander says for the first time, she realized that she wasn't doomed to stay with her abuser forever. So she wrote a note to her ex-husband, packed up her kids and whatever she could fit in her car, and left. She contacted a local shelter for an advocate named Janelle Carrasco, who would go on to become Stand Up Survivor's clinical director. And over time, Alexander slowly started using her voice. And I found that people would say, oh, this happened to me too. Well, this happened to me too. And I thought to myself, you've got to be kidding me. You mean this is going on and no one's talking about it? Like, you could have saved me a long time ago? Um, and so that's when Stand Up Survivor started. It literally started as just me using my voice as a concept. Um, and I decided to make it a nonprofit organization because I realized when I used my voice, it was empowering other survivors to use theirs too. Stand Up Survivor offers a range of services to back survivors, including safety planning for those looking to leave their abusers and freedom bags with two weeks worth of essential supplies for those who finally get away. Alexander says the organization also helps connect survivors with legal resources, counselors, and support groups where they can meet other survivors and swap stories. That part, she says, is particularly important because for much of her relationship, she didn't even realize that what was happening to her was abuse. 
And so one of our big things about Center Survivor were education, education, education. You don't know what you don't know. And we, we empower people through education. I'm talking about survivors, organizations, churches, companies. Our goal is to make sure people know what domestic violence is and the different types of abuse. So in the spirit of education, let's mention some facts straight from the Stand Up Survivor and National Coalition Against Domestic Violence websites. First, on average, about 20 people a minute are physically abused by their partner in the U.S. That comes out to more than 10 million people abused a year. Domestic violence can impact people of all ages, races, and genders. But one in four women and one in nine men have reported some form of physical violence, sexual violence, or stalking from their partner. Women between the ages of 18 and 34 are some of the most likely to experience abuse. One in 10 teens has experienced physical abuse from their partner, and 84% of those teens say they have suffered psychological abuse. And of course, domestic violence can get lethal. 72% of all murder-suicides involve an intimate partner, and 94% of the victims are female. Physical and sexual abuse are certainly some of the more extreme forms of domestic violence. But Alexander says it's important to remember that abuse comes in many ways, and it starts out small. You would never have seen me with a black eye or a bruise, but I have been in an abusive relationship for years. And oftentimes they're going to start with, why are you wearing that? that? That doesn't really look good. You probably should just wear this from now on. Or your, your family, you guys are really too close. Let's relocate to a different city, a different state and really focus on us. Or why are you talking to them? They're breaking your cell phone. They're isolating you from your friends and family. You find that you're always on edge, walking on eggshells, not allowed to really and truly be who you are. And that's just like a like tip of the iceberg, right? And then it starts with the psychological abuse. No one's ever going to want you. Look at you. You're stupid. You're fat. You're dumb. You're not smart enough. You're just like your mother. Or, you, you know, if there's mental health issues or concerns, they're, well, you're crazy. And then you have the financial abuse. It's a big misconception that all survivors don't have money. That's just not true. I work with survivors all the time who are financially secure, but their abuser control their money. Oftentimes, the abuser's not even working. And so it's like they're running up the credit cards. They're able to shop and buy things, but you're not. Or they're giving you a, a limited budget where you're only allowed to spend a certain amount of money to provide for the entire family. So it comes in a lot of different ways. Alexander says it's important to remember that physical abuse can take several forms as well pinching and biting and slapping, pushing and strangulation. And another thing I want to incorporate in that is they're punching the wall, but they don't punch you, right? Or they're breaking things in the house and you're thinking, well, they didn't really hit me. No, that's a form of physical abuse because their goal is intimidation and to create fear. We'll come back to Alexander later in the show. So we understand that domestic violence is a broad experience that happens to a lot of people in a number of ways. And the approaches taken by organizations to combat and prevent it are constantly evolving. I got the chance to speak with Kelly Owens. Kelly Owens is the executive director of the New York State Office for the Prevention of Domestic Violence, or OPDV, the only executive-level domestic violence state agency in the country. OPDV is responsible for advising the governor's office and state legislature on gender-based violence policies and programs, training and public awareness campaigns throughout the state, and working to ensure domestic and sexual violence service provision statewide. Prior to joining OPDV, Kelly was the director of women's affairs for the governor's office. She's also worked with numerous women's organizations, including YWCA's and Planned Parenthood. 
in the past two years since I got to the office, we've really tried to redefine the office to really be a very policy-driven office where we're really living up to our um, our statute, which says that we will be the main voice in regards to domestic violence services and policy and program in the state of New York. We are really looking at how services are delivered in the state of New York around domestic and sexual violence and gender-based violence. We've widened our lens to gender-based violence to be more inclusive. So we're really kind of redefining what we do and how the state looks at these issues. Um, So we're really excited about some of the work that we've been doing the past couple of years. Cool. Let's talk about the last year and a half or so then. What have you learned during the coronavirus pandemic? I know in the beginning there were fears that the pandemic could lead to an increase or worsening of domestic violence. Let's clarify that a little bit, because I don't know if we can say it led to an increase. Okay. It left people in abusive relationships isolated, potentially. There was an increase into our hotline. I would say that's a good thing, right? That means somebody's reaching out for help. Mm -hmm. That means that the message got to the person who needed help. I will say what the pandemic laid bare for us is something that we had been looking at here in New York for about two years. And really, what did the service model need to look like? You know, I'll go back to the 80s when it was built. It was really built, I'm a Harry Potter fan, like the Weasley House. Like we did shelter and then we said, well, we need non-residential services. Those people who don't want to go into shelter, but they need safety planning and they need all those supportive services to get them to safety. So we did all of those things kind of piecemeal. What we really have been trying to look at is, okay, what do they really want? They want safe housing. That should be the first thing that we look at. COVID laid that bare because people couldn't go into shelter. So we had to look for alternatives like, you know, hotel rooms for a certain amount of time or Airbnbs for a certain amount of time. Our community really tried to look at new alternatives, which we knew we needed to lead to anyway. Um, We also knew that mobile advocacy had to be a thing, right? Before we would say, come in and we'll have a conversation. Now it was, well, let's do this over Skype. Let's maybe meet in the park. Let's maybe meet at Starbucks and have these conversations. So really going to survivors rather than them coming to us and a more flexible funding. So, you know, there are abusers out of the house, but there's a broken door or their utility payments need to be made. We looked at a more flexible funding model that would allow us to pay for those things so that they could stay safe where they were. Outside of the pandemic, what else have you been up to to kind of reevaluate the way services are offered and structured? We've had survivor listening tours across the state, really listening to survivors about how the system worked for them or how it didn't work for them. I think that one of the things that we're also focused on is really understanding the people that have not traditionally taken advantage of the system that's out there to support them for very good reasons, right? If you're a woman of color and you're calling the police, that adds a level of stress to your own relationship and your own safety that you may not want to take. Not that the police come in with that intention, but it is in the back of people's minds. Or if I call for help, will my children be taken away? Do my children end up in child protective services? So we're really trying to work intentionally with communities of color and those who have traditionally not taken advantage of the system to find out how can we build a better system for them. You know, we're looking at it internally as well to really figure out if the funding structure that we have in the state of New York right now, domestic and sexual violence funding sits over six state agencies. And we're really trying to align the policy that goes with that funding to be more survivor centered, trauma informed. 
So I have what might be kind of a weird question, but when we talk about preventing domestic violence, how should we approach that conversation? Because I feel like whenever I see big news stories and tragedies where someone has been killed by their partner, domestic violence comes up. And you've got one group of people online saying, be sure to teach your daughters and sons the warning signs of abuse. And then you've got another group of people online being like, well, how about we teach our kids not to become abusers? When we're having that conversation, how should we be looking at it? Yeah, I think that we all look for the really big story, right? Mm -hmm. The story where abuse rises to the level of criminality. Mm -hmm. If we really want to address the issue of domestic violence, you're right. We have to start that conversation very, very early in everyone's life about what is a healthy relationship look like, what does abuse look like, and have a real conversation with both boys and girls about what that looks like. You know, and that means having really kind of uncomfortable conversations at some point. If we're really going to prevent domestic violence, we have to start talking about what healthy relationships look like very early in people's lives. And so what are some signs of a healthy relationship and what are some signs of things that maybe you should be looking out for? Yep. You know, let's talk about technology, for example. You know, if somebody you're in a relationship with has to see your cell phone, that should be a red flag for you. If somebody asks you to, you know, put your location services on so they know where you are, that's a sign of power and control that they want over you. You know, you should be really looking for a relationship where you feel equal, where you feel safe, where you're not feeling like somebody's trying to tear you down, even to the littlest extent, right? And are people asking you about your money and how you're spending your money? And financial abuse is really big. It's like 99% of domestic violence cases at some point say they were a victim of financial abuse, trying to control your finances and who you can spend time with. If somebody doesn't want you to spend time with your friends and they're jealous about that, that might be a sign. And so you mentioned that way that technology is affecting domestic violence as well. Like, How has that changed the game? I think it's changed the games a lot, right, because it's such a new system of which people can control you. Um, and just looking at where you're going to be and who you're been with um, is something that is, you know, kind of scary. Also, there's technology that's helping. You know, we, during COVID, tried to find new ways to reach survivors because we knew that people were probably isolated in their home with their abuser and not able to access the normal areas of respite that they might have, right? You go to work, you're able to talk to your colleagues and talk to them about the situation you're in, or you're going to your mom's house to have a bit of time where you can really kind of reset and figure out what's your safety plan. So we introduced a text and chat line in in about a week after we decided we were going to do it, and we put it out. And, you know, the first day we were all on the text and chat line answering those texts and chat, which also has allowed us to really understand that people may say more and have a more in-depth conversation with you on text and chat because they're, you know, not having that personal exchange, but they're willing to say more things, which allows us to do better safety planning for them. I would have never thought about that, but I guess it is sometimes easier to communicate what you want to say when you don't have to actually say it. Yeah. Um, what are some other things that are like misunderstood about domestic violence? I think that people generally think it just happens to women. Now, Predominantly, you know, one in four women and one in nine men suffer from some interaction with domestic violence. So that's a misconception. I think it's also important to realize that domestic violence happens in same-sex couples and that dating violence and domestic violence among the transgender community is epidemic levels. And I think, you know, back to my point about, 
you know, we always think about domestic violence as the violent act, you know, the slap, the hit, the strangle. But so much of the domestic violence stuff that we try to address doesn't reach to the level of criminality. So it's the coercion that happens. It's the taking of the paycheck. It's all of those things that we often think, well, that's a red flag that needs to be addressed. And those are the things that build up. If we're just addressing the criminal justice aspect, we're missing the boat. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have any advice for someone who's maybe seeing some of those red flags and like their friend or their friend's relationship and they want to put that word out there, but they don't know how to go about it? Yeah, I think what's really important is you have that conversation privately, Mm -hmm. right? You don't ever put that victim or survivor in a situation where their potential abuser can hear them. Mm -hmm. And you really ask the question and you ask it in a way that doesn't feel judgmental, right? Because they're already feeling so much shame. Don't add to that. So it's like, how are you doing? You know, I saw this happen. Are you okay? You know, they'll decide whether or not they want to open up to you. But I also think it's really important that you listen to what that person is really asking from you. Is it just to listen? Is it to help? Is it to give advice? Because sometimes we end up, I do this. My kids will tell you. I give them advice when they don't want it. Um, So, you know, it's really about listening and giving that person the support that they need. For someone who's looking to leave maybe a a dangerous situation right now, what does that process usually look like? What advice do you have for them going through that? Well, if you're in immediate danger, call 911. If you have time to really think about how you plan your safety, you can call our hotline or a text and chat line, and that uh, hotline will hook you up with a local domestic violence provider who will help you do safety planning and figure out what your next moves are. Are you financially ready to go? And if you're not ready to go, how can you be safe? We have 92 domestic violence, licensed domestic violence providers in the state of New York. But there's also others that do that work in culturally specific communities um, that we also work with. Kelly Owens is the executive director of the New York State Office for the Prevention of Domestic Violence. Let's remind listeners of those hotlines. The New York State Domestic and Sexual Violence Hotline is available 24-7 at 1-800-942-6906. Again, that's 1-800-942-6906. You can text at 1-844-997-2121, and you can chat online at opdv.ny.gov. Kelly Owens, thanks for speaking with me. In light of Domestic Violence Awareness Month, the New York State Office of Children and Family Services recently administered a total of $6.5 million in grants to domestic violence prevention programs and housing providers across the state, including Unity House of Troy, which has been helping survivors of domestic violence, human trafficking, gun violence, poverty, HIV, AIDS, and more in Rensselaer County since 1971. It operates a 24-7, fully staffed, 33-bed emergency shelter and an undisclosed location in the county. It also offers full case management and helps connect survivors to housing, health care services, counseling, employment opportunities, pro bono attorneys, etc. Sarah McGockney is the organization's outreach program director. We are seeing so many victims. That shelter is full every day of the year. McGockney has been at Unity House for about 10 years, since she came to its staff as an intern in college. She says she immediately fell in love with the work, both the opportunity to help others and the challenge of it, because every client's situation is different. 
So what does that work look like? And what does the Unity House process look like? Obviously, as I just mentioned, Unity House helps people across a range of situations, but McGochney says those situations can often overlap. Domestic violence and human trafficking can sometimes intertwine, and the presence of a gun in a domestic violence situation increases the risk of homicide by 500 percent. Put simply, McGochney says Unity House offers comprehensive care so it can tailor its services to each client's specific needs. It's all about trauma-informed care, and she says the work starts with a conversation. We're meeting the victim where they're at. We understand that they're in trauma. People always think like victims should react a certain way or should look a certain way, that they should look sad, that they should look that they should be grateful that you're helping them. Nobody is grateful that they're going through a violent situation. When we talk about domestic violence particularly, why would they be grateful that somebody that they feel they love, that maybe they have children with, is abusing them, is hurting them? And we see so much head injury too. It's not what we think a victim should look like. It looks combative. When somebody has a head injury, they're very combative. They're very aggressive. They're they're not sure what to do because their body's in fight or flight mode. So we operate on trauma-informed care. We try to understand victims' trauma, and we talk to them, what do you want to do? We want to make sure our services are culturally relevant. We want to make sure that they are exactly what is needed for the victim. And like I said, everybody has different like safety concerns. When you're looking at a trafficking victim, when you're looking at a victim who is maybe LGBT plus and isn't out quite out to their family yet, when you're looking at elderly victims, everybody has different safety concerns and safety issues. And so we need to be talking to each victim individually and finding out what is your need and what can we do to help. As part of meeting survivors where they're at, McGochney says they sometimes work with survivors before they've decided to leave their abuser. But oftentimes, McGochney says people come to the organization in crisis. Again, even if a survivor is financially stable or the provider for their family, McGochney says the point of leaving is often the most dangerous point in an abusive relationship. They might have to flee their homes in secret or in a hurry, so they might not have much more than the clothes on their back. McGochney says Unity House will help parents navigate schooling for their children and boarding for pets, but basic needs and health come first. Have you ate? Have you slept? Do you need a new pair of clothes? You know, I had a victim come in the other day who was crying, saying, can you please just get me a shirt? I just need a shirt because her shirt had been ripped off her in the middle of the street by her abuser. And so we're really looking at what do we have to do to get you through the next, you know, hour. And then we'll talk about placement and we can talk about placement in a shelter or you feel safe staying with a family or friend. And how do we do this safely? What's your long term goal? And really assessing all that and letting victims lead those things. The other thing we do when a victim walks through our doors is we, as part of our initial intake, we assess for lethality. So lethality is the risk of a victim being killed in a relationship. So there are a couple things that are indicators of a very high risk for lethality that either we would encourage, come on, like, let me take you to the hospital. Please let me take you to the hospital. We'll we'll get you checked out. You don't have to do anything, you know, or do you want to file a police report? Do you not? Do you want us to take pictures of these uh, wounds so that if you decide later you want to file a police report, you can. So a couple of those indicators of lethality are going to be like a, a strangulation, right? That's something I'm going to want a victim to go to the hospital immediately to be checked out because of that 
risk of brain injury, stroke. There are victims of strangulation who have died just 72 hours later from a stroke. The other things are going to be sexual assaults. And also, obviously, you know, all of these things have long-term psychological mental health issues. We want to make sure that their physical health is okay because that's probably what they're focused on and get them through that checkup and then, you know, work on getting them into therapy long-term. I think a lot of people think somebody walks through our doors and we should be like, they need to just be in therapy right now. And like, sometimes they just need to eat, you know what I mean? So we really need to meet their immediate emergency needs. Um, We certainly are going to encourage all those other services to help them heal and to help them get through this. But like I said, somebody comes in with a strangulation, they could have a brain injury. I'm not going to refer them to therapy. I'm going to talk to them, encourage them to go to the hospital. Now, McGogney says it's important to focus on basic needs first and emotional recovery later. And that's exactly what Lisa Alexander says she had to do when she left her ex-husband. Luckily, she and her kids were able to stay with her parents. But for a while, Alexander says the focus was just keeping afloat, staying safe and keeping things normal as much as she could for her children. Alexander says the average survivor goes back to their abuser about seven times before they finally break away. And her story was no different. When I left my abusive relationship, I was assigned my advocate, Janelle, and I walked into her class because I, I looked around. I was like, oh my goodness, it's other people. And then I walked up to her and I said that God is going to save my marriage. And she said, okay. And I sat down. She didn't say anything else. So you initially thought that it was going to somehow iron itself out? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, as a Christian too, for me, my faith was very important. We did not believe in divorce. My parents had been married for 54 years. There was no divorce, right? Um, but then I realized God loved me more than he hated divorce. He, he wasn't going to punish me for, get, for divorcing someone who was hurting me because that's not how I was created to live. When she finally did get away, Alexander says she was able to slowly start the healing process. She got her bachelor's in psychology and master's in counseling psychology from Palm Beach Atlantic University, something her ex-husband had never allowed her to do. She went to therapy, and she particularly credits support groups like the one she just mentioned with helping her feel empowered. For anyone dealing with domestic violence at any stage, she wants you to know you're not alone. And one of the things I love that we do here at Stand Up Survivor is we work with survivors. I just finished working with a survivor with her for over a year. She was in the relationship. She wasn't ready to leave, and that's okay. We want you to know that it's okay if you're not ready to go because sometimes you still love the person or you have finances involved or children. You're waiting for the kids to, whatever your situation is, it's fine. We will journey with you through. And then one weekend she called and I knew that she was ready to go. I could hear it in her voice. We executed her safety plan. And on that Wednesday, she left. And she's been free probably for about three or four months now. We're doing so well, Um, you know? And so regardless of where you are, safety planning is very, very important. So find an advocate, find a resource, someone to safety plan with you to get you out safely. You know how dangerous your situation is. Domestic violence is life or death. And if it doesn't kill you physically, it can emotionally, psychologically, it really does affect you. You don't deserve to live that right now. If you or someone you love is suffering from domestic violence, the National Domestic Violence Hotline is available at 1-800-799-SAFE. Again, that's 1-800-799-SAFE. You can also text START to 88788. You can learn more about Stand Up Survivor at StandUpSurvivor.com and Unity House of Troy at UnityHouseNY.org. Unity House also has a 24-7 hotline. You can call at 518-272-2370 and text at 518-720-6161.
You've been listening to 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok, and that theme underneath me right now, that's Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. Thanks to Lisa Alexander, Kelly Owens, and Sarah McGockney for taking the time to speak with me. And of course, thank you for tuning in. If you like what you're hearing, you can find more at wamcpodcasts.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're on Twitter and Instagram at 51% Radio. Until next week, I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was every single girl. I was nobody else. I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half. He was a hollow laugh. And I lost my cool somewhere along the way. At night and down the hallway. I had to learn how to look away. I lost my cool, no electricity. Hot rain on the concrete. Sweet melting little girl dreams. I said, oh, Taking me, where are you taking me? Sit